Hello, and welcome back to My Love Letter Time Machine, a podcast where we are discovering the Victorian love story told through the letters of two ordinary people from Sheffield, Yorkshire, Fred Shepherd and Janie Warburton, who were courting in the 1880s. I'm Ingrid Birchall-Hughes, and I just happen to be their great-great-granddaughter. And this time, we'll be taking a look at Fred's social life, and after that, he'll be taking us on holiday to Bridlington. First, I need to hark back to the last podcast where, if you remember, we found out that Janie had received a foul valentine, possibly of the vinegar variety, and was somehow convinced of it being from Fred. After publishing that episode, I ended up in a chat on Twitter about the ins and outs of what had happened, and some interesting ideas were floated, so I thought I might share them before we got into the rest of this episode. You may recall that Fred mentioned going to Darnell School for an entertainment on February the 10th, when he was quite deliberately snubbed by one of Jane's brothers, and that two days after this, he went to see Jane, lost his temper over the matter, and then flounced off, or as Fred put it, left her in a very ungentlemanly manner. From Janie's point of view, she gets a mouthful from Fred, he storms off, and then she receives the nasty valentine on the 14th, pertaining to be from Fred. Now Fred said that he'd sent her a romantic one depicting a pair of gloves, but someone in Jane's household intercepted it and then replaced it with the vinegar one. I know I pointed this finger of suspicion at her mother Maria, but the chat on Twitter even went into some speculation as to how much of it could have been a setup with the actual snubbing, that making Fred angry in the first place could have been part of the plan. Obviously this is all conjecture, but revisiting the timeline really does bring home the level of manipulation going on here. How many family members were in on this plan? Just one seeing a valentine from Fred as an opportunity, or a whole subterfuge. I don't like the idea that James, her father, was involved. He really doesn't seem the sort. But it's quite alarming to consider how much interference is going on here. Anyway, I thought it was interesting and just wanted to share that. In the last podcast, I mentioned the dramatic entertainments that Fred had persuaded Janie to come to at the end of February 1879. After some searching through the British newspaper archive, I was delighted to find a write-up of that actual event in the Sheffield Independent on the 26th of February 1879. It reads, Cliff Parish Church. Last evening, a dramatic entertainment was given in the church school's Lord Street, Attercliffe, by some of the members of the Mutual Improvement Society, in the presence of a large and appreciative audience. Mr Pinder, vice-president, occupied the chair. The first part of the entertainment was a comedietta entitled A Cup of Tea, intended to show how petty jealousies, like great events from little causes, spring. The character of Sir Charles Seymour, the head of the house, a man about town, was well delineated by Mr John Mies, and Mrs Gill, who in the absence of Miss Johnson was entrusted with the part at the last moment, was most successful as Lady Clara Seymour, his loving spouse. Joseph the footman was entrusted to Mr H. Mies. The character, however, that was productive of the most amusement was that taken up by Mr Gent, vis-à-vis Scroggins, a gentleman who succeeded in mixing himself up in other people's business. 
a similar piece entitled Family Jars provided a great amount of genuine fun. Mrs. Gill, Miss Lucy Craven and Mrs. John Mies, Hitchin and Johnson were the dramatis personae. I've since found out that Family Jars, a farce in one act, was written by the dramatist Joseph Lunn and had first been performed in the Haymarket Theatre, London, way back in 1822. And while I've not found an author for a cup of tea, I have found a script. Online searches pull up newspaper reports of other amateur performances of both plays on either side of the Atlantic during the late Victorian period. Fred's diary mentions Lucy Craven, who he walked out with for a short time the previous year prior to Janie, but remains part of his social circle. John Mies was clearly a good friend. We have a couple of letters of his, and he is one of the witnesses who signed Fred and Janie's wedding certificate when they eventually married three years later, in October 1882. The only John Mies I can find in that area at the time is a pawnbroker, who has a brother called Harry. The article mentions Mr H. Mies and also an apprentice called Alfred Panton. Fred and Jane's letters sometimes mention a Betsy Panton, probably a relation of Alfred, in the same breath as John Mies, so I have to conclude that it's the same person. Fred's later letters make reference to John having a knowledge of Jewish culture, but John's own letters express deeply held Christian beliefs, so I'm wondering if he is of Jewish descent, but at some point converted to Christianity. Johnson is Fred Johnson, part of the three Fred, Fred and Ted group, of which our Fred was one. A later entry about another evening of entertainment, Fred mentions helping Johnson with fixing scenery, so I'm assuming that our Fred was usually part of the backstage crew. Aside from social events, the Attercliffe Parish Church Mutual Improvement Association was chiefly about adult evening classes. Adult education was undergoing a huge surge in interest at that time in Sheffield and was part of the wider knowledge revolution in the late 19th century. Fred, who seems to have had a brain like a sponge forever demanding input, seized all the education opportunities he could, attending both his local Mutual Improvement Association and participating as one of the nearly 400 students at the Sheffield Church of England Educational Institute at that time. Reading that newspaper article slotted into place for me, the people in Fred's social life. It's obvious that Fred's friends are drawn mainly from his fellow students, although he also socialises with some of his colleagues from work as well. Fred goes walking a lot with Fred Johnson. They seem to think of nothing of doing huge loops of nearly 20 miles, encompassing the villages of Canklow, Whiston, Uli, Treaton, and back home to Darnall via Handsworth. The last stop obviously hoping to bump into Jane. Over the course of March and April 1879, Fred joins Darnell Cricket Club and he starts dancing classes, sometimes partnering with Fred Johnson's sister Amy. Fred settles into a pattern of seeing Jane for a walk most Sunday evenings and they seem to be very close because they start, as he describes, to get awfully spoony. On Tuesday, April the 22nd, Fred writes, wrote a long letter to Ted in the afternoon telling him that I was on the point of making confession of love to Janie. Went up with Janie in the evening, made the confession referred to, received a reciprocative reply, she's promised to be my good angel. I find this fascinating. It's all so considered and worked out and then double checked with a good friend. I love this about Fred. He's not at all spontaneous, is he? But he feels deeply nevertheless. 
and it's such a treat to have the moment of the mutual I love yous recorded. Fred's diary for the spring and early summer of 1879 is mostly full of having walks with Janie. Given that he can't call for her without reminding the Warburtons, Jane's family, of his so-called unsuitability, the pair of them continue to arrange things with an element of subterfuge, something that Fred seems to send up in the following letter. Darnell, April 30th, 1879. Dear Janie, if you and Miss Bray go to Sheffield, as you mentioned, it may possibly happen that you will return by the 720. If so, there seems to be the faintest probability that, God willing, weather permitting, Ted and myself may see that particular train arrive, although, as you are well aware, it will be against my inclination. If you should not go to Sheffield, it may nevertheless, notwithstanding possibly happen, that you may make an extraordinary effort to be travelling down the street at about 8pm. I am in a desperate hurry just now, 7pm. Also, I should experience great pleasure in lengthening this note, saying that it is so seldom that I write to you, but you can imagine it extended, with the practical outpouring of an overburdened heart and also innumerable buzzes, through which agony I shall remain your disconsolate lover until tomorrow night. Fred. Buzzes are kisses, or what we would call pecks on the cheeks or lips, I think similar to what the French call a bis, and in this case, obviously not just used for greeting. Fred is obviously crazy about Jane, and I love the way he's using humour to skate over feelings he has. A lot more walks in May and June follow, including a most enjoyable day at Roshabi, the spectacular Gothic ruins in Maltby Rotherham, which seems to have become a favourite place for them to visit. On one occasion, Fred writes, Janie came to our church in the evening. We had a delightful walk home through the wood. It was beautifully clear. The moon was full. It was splendid. July brings the village feasts and dancing, and Fred's dancing lessons pay off when he gets to dance with Janie at the Darnell Feast on the cricket field, and a few days later at a dance on the village green. Jane seems to have an irrepressible spirit and energy, and Fred wrote, I was considerably put out at her dancing with several other gentlemen. But Jane is clearly just as besotted with Fred, because when Fred misses going up to see Jane one evening, due to feeling ill, he not only had to ask my friend Ted Watts to do duty, but the next day had to see Janie to quieten her as she was uneasy. After what is the spring and summer that they fell properly in love with each other, I was gratified to read that the Warburtons might be thawing a tiny fraction, because at the beginning of August, Fred writes, Sunday, August the 3rd, went up in the evening. It rained, so I was invited by Janie inside, went in and spent a very enjoyable evening. Actually invited inside. Wonders will never cease. Lancashire and the West Riding of Yorkshire, the former religious holiday of Wakes Week, became adapted during the Industrial Revolution as a regular summer holiday, where local factories and collieries closed for one or two weeks for essential maintenance. Those that could afford it would travel to seaside resorts for the benefits of sea bathing. 
Many towns would take the holiday on a different week between June and September, and the various resorts on the coasts would find themselves hosting people from a different town each week. Special trains would be put on by the rail companies, and places like Blackpool could receive over 20,000 holidaymakers in a single week from just one town. For Fred and his colleagues, the Wakes Week in 1879 for their works appears to have started on the 11th of August, when he made the trip to Bridlington, a seaside town on the east coast of Yorkshire. Once known as the lobster capital of Europe, Bridlington emerged as one of the many popular resorts for summer holidays. Fred and his co-workers were lodged in King Street, in lodgings without a sea view, but still very close to the seafront. Although holidays were unpaid at that time, Fred's remarks in his letters suggest that Brown, Bailey and Dixon, Fred's employers, seem to have made some contribution to the holiday accommodation. So I'd like to share with you the first back and forth exchange I have between Fred and Jane, which originated while Fred was on holiday. Bridlington, August the 12th, 79. Care of Mr. Severs, 7 King Street. My darling Janie, we arrived, or arrove here, at 5.50 yesterday. We were rather unfortunate, as we wanted to go via York. There are only two routes, and we got the wrong one. Tommy got the wrong tickets. Moral. Never let anyone get your ticket for you in future, my dear. We were all right until we got to Doncaster, and then just as we were getting in the York train, the porter stopped us, and we had to wait another hour for the train to hull. We tried to square the guard to let us go, but neither love nor money would avail. I didn't try the love, but I did try the money. He says, we cannot do it. Confound it. There's a band just this minute playing silver threads under the window. I wish they would take them somewhere else. Where was I? And Doncaster, one hour, 60 minutes, prodigious. The band is playing Where Art Thou Beam of Light. I should suggest to them that it is in the next street or anywhere out of hours. It's impossible to properly appreciate good music and write at the same time. They are playing another very pathetic melody just now with tremendous bass too. I'm not sure that I've spelt tremendous right. Could you please kindly be good enough to look it up in the dictionary for me? How can a fellow spell correctly with a band playing? There now, they're gone. What a relief. A Doncaster, we were in a position to thoroughly appreciate your thoughtfulness, for which thoughtfulness, or rather strawberries, I shall amply reward you when I get back. Some fishermen got out at Conisborough. Consequently, the carriage did not smell so strongly of bread and cheese as it did at first. From Doncaster to Hull is the most miserable ride, the country being dreadfully flat. There is one redeeming feature, and that is a station called Bruh, the next or the next but one to Hull. Confound it. There's the band again. I should like to stop the hole they blow down with a potato. They're going into Shanky's look ever to Jesus. I earnestly wish they would, in another street. Was talking about Bruh. It is the prettiest station I have ever seen. The station house is completely covered with ivy, and inside the station is one mass of evergreens, geraniums, futures, etc. It looks really beautiful. The band is playing a little more of silver threads. I shall be completely bald before I get back. There now, they're playing sweet spirit hear my prayer. They ought to play grandfather's clock and then expire. When we got to Hull, we had 35 minutes to wait. Another luxury. And then we had to sit hands on knees from Hull to Bridlington, the train was so crowded. The fine weather is fetching them out. I almost learned how to knit stockings by watching a lady knit them. They were bronze green. How is that for being the fashion now? 
I can't write much more because Kelsey and another young fellow from Attercliffe are waiting outside. I also intended saying something that I should have said before now, had I been with you, and that is, how dearly I love you. Darling, there's nobody here fit to look at you in my estimation, although it would be much easier to put it in shorthand thus. For example, Janie, my darling, I love you dearly, would go in half the space. I really haven't time to write any more. Tommy's impatient. Believe me, I wish you were here. It would be a great deal better. I hope you will write back as early as possible and oblige. Your devoted but disconsolate lover, Fred. And at last we come to the first letter I have from Janie. Hansworth. August the 13th, 79. My dearest Fred, I am happy to hear of your safe arrival at Bridlington, and sorry you were so unfortunate as to go by the wrong route. It would be a slight disappointment for you not seeing York. I went up to my brother's after I left you, love, to cheer my drooping spirits. I had a bad headache, so I went to sleep in the afternoon. After tea, Sister Polly and I went down to town to have a shop window gaze. I bought a new hat. I hope you will like it. It is not any bigger than a large size coal scuttle. Yesterday, Brother Jack, Pem and I went to Claycross Flower Show. It is considered the best show roundabout here. They had a very good brass band there. Unfortunately, they did not torment me with silver threads, or I'm sure I would have gone bald in a few minutes. If they torment you again, love, I should advise you get some of Mrs. Allen's hair restorer and rub it on your hair nightly. We arrived home at 11. Admire the picture of myself fighting to get in the train. And here, Jane has drawn a rough cartoon of a man and two ladies. The man is wearing a mid-length coat and sporting what looks like a top hat. And the two ladies are identically dressed in long skirts with bustles at the rear, hair gathered in a bun at the nape of the neck, both with bowl-shaped hats, and one of them is carrying an umbrella or a parasol. Jane continues. I should have enjoyed it so much better if you'd been there too. I can't write any more tonight. It is past time. Only that I love you as much as ever. I hope to remain your darling forever. Janie. P.S. I am rather bothered about the stops in the grammar. This is the earliest letter of Jane's that has survived, and she didn't include a single full stop, bless her. Sister Polly is Jane's sister-in-law, Mary, married to Jane's eldest brother, William. Jack is her brother, John, and Pem is Jane's older sister, Emma. This family seems to have had the habit of not actually calling anyone by their given name and using nicknames most of the time. I know it's confusing. I'll try my best to keep repeating who is who. It's wonderful to finally hear Jane's voice for the first time in Fred and Jane's story. We get a first glimpse of her fabulous sense of humour here as well. Mrs Allen's hair restorer was a proprietary brand of hair ointment which contained the dubious concoction of sulphur, acetate of lead, glycerin and flavoured water. Anyway, here's Fred's reply. Bridlington Key August the 14th, 79. My darling Janie, I think I left off with my last, with our arrival at Bridlington. After tea, we went where everyone else goes, that is, to the seawall parade. I can't describe the agony that I suffered in walking on that parade. Everybody walks so slow without bending their backs or knocking their arms about. It was dreadful. I was considerably startled when I had walked round several times to find that two out of every three had a kind of overskirt something like a great pinafore. They look so like many full-grown babies. I hope I shall not have the dubious pleasure of seeing you in one. 
or I shall certainly protest against it. I then turned my attention to the coal scuttles, which are very useful articles indoors, but rather out of place outside. It is rather amusing to see some of the wearers of these kitchen utensils. They seem to have an idea that by some accountable means they look so modest in them, and so aid that impression by folding their hands, one over the other, and looking down as though they were ashamed of themselves. Another fashion in hats is the Zulu, which is worn by males and females. There is a great scope for originality in the shape of them. When you buy them, there is no shape at all. Some of them have turned them up at the front, others at the back, others at the right side, others at the left, others again have them obliquely or cornerwise. Everyone follows her own suit well, but in every case that turned up part is covered with cardinal and a cardinal bow at the back. Just fancy yourself in a hat as big as Amy Johnson's Gainsborough, but composed of the coarsest straw, quite browned, and a cardinal bow as to trimming. Would it suit? Kelsey proposed that all four of us should each speculate in one each to astonish the natives, but I objected on the ground that it was scarcely my style. Our fourth chum is a young fellow from Zion Chapel, Attercliffe, with a little more than the usual dissenter's quantity of gas, which he very beneficently illuminates us, and for which we are truly grateful. I don't know whether these minute details bore you. If so, I hope you will not forget to tell me in your next. However, I will give them about your own sex, which must be more interesting than anything else. Besides, you suggested that I should take note of the fashions for you, so here goes. I have noticed that cardinal is muchly used, I had no idea that red would contrast well with this many colours. No matter what colour the dress is, that is sure to be some red about it. Dark blue and red seems to look best when mixing judiciously, and the prevailing mixture is a blue dress as a foundation, with a very broad kind of sash across the front of the skirt. Red, also red belt, and broad bands around the rest of the same colour, and some few with red colours of the fishwife pattern, I think you called it. The next favourite is a skirt of red with a dress of any other colour cut thus. So I'll just break off here to explain that Fred has drawn examples of the hens of two different dresses. They both trail slightly on the ground, one with a scalloped edge revealing a contrasting colour and one with a chevron or zigzag edge, is this the fishwife pattern, again revealing a different colour. Anyway, back to the letter. This is very effective and looks remarkably well. The nicest kind of dress though, in my idea, are the white ones, which look so cool it rather does one good to see them. It refreshes one almost as much as a bottle of ginger ale, which, by the way, is sixpence for a bottle. Rather a profitable investment. The ladies here have an absurd fashion of carrying small walking sticks. Rather manly, is it not? If you care to carry one, I've bought one, which has not a silver top to it, as some of them have. Now for myself, if that would interest you. On Monday night, we did nothing but promenade. Everyone promenades here, so I am compelled to follow suit, though I cannot say that I enjoyed it. In fact, I thought it was dreadfully slow. Tuesday, first thing I had a swim, and then after breakfast we went out in a boat about four miles. In fact, we considered due to our honour to go further than anybody else. The weather was grand, very hot, very clear. Not a cloud disturbed the calm serenity of the Italian sky. Don't you call that a bit of poetic writing? After dinner, we went to Flamborough, partly on the cliffs and partly through the woods. This is a beautiful walk, but it lacked one thing, and that was yourself. I should have enjoyed it more if I had been with you, or rather you with me. 
We intended doing the lighthouse, but unfortunately for the lighthouse, we fell a dry and turned into the ship in for tea. There was a bagatelle board here which occupied our attention until it was too late for the lighthouse, so we shall have to do that another day. When coming back, we turned in at the skating rink, where I had to go through the painful operation of learning afresh. Wednesday. The sea was very rough, so we were compelled to stay in the harbour with our boat. We have got three blisters on each hand, which caused me much inconvenience. I have also been much put out over my shirt buttons, which will persist in coming off, no doubt owing to the amount of uncounted strain put upon them. In the afternoon it rained, so we spent it in the George Inn, a thing I didn't care for, but which was much mitigated by the daughter, who comes from Sheffield, playing me several of my favourite pieces on the piano. Are you jealous? In the evening it poured down with rain, so we got a stock of sherry, lemonade, cigars and cards, etc., and invited Kelsey and the others, and had a very enjoyable evening in our sitting room, which is a very nice one. Thursday. I had a swim before breakfast towards the coast of Flanders, but turned back before getting there. After breakfast, I did nothing but read the papers on the parade. In the afternoon, we had another row almost out of sight of land. In the evening, we did nothing but smoke cigarettes on the parade. We have got the most comfortable lodgings, the sitting room, well furnished, all to ourselves. They board us here, and I have not the least idea what the figure will be. Something high, considering the quantity of beef, mutton, puddings, pies, etc. consumed. On Tuesday, I carved a leg of mutton for the first time. In fact, I am in constant practice in the carving department and shall soon be an expert. I think we are all remarkably good here, but it is rather slow. No theatre, no dancing, no anything. I should be perfectly happy if you were here, Janie, my darling, for I miss you very much and will do more, I'm afraid, on Sunday. However, you must write me a long letter then about yourself and anything else you think will interest me. In doing so, you will be favouring your true lover, and your dearest Fred. I think it's really lovely to see that while Fred is on holiday, he's relaxed and he's decided that he's going to entertain Janie with these letters. So he sort of lets himself go with the humour and taking the gentle rip out of what's going on around him. When he refers to his colleague having a bit more than the usual quantity of gas, I think that's an expression about someone who doesn't stop talking I remember my grandparents talking about people who've got too much gas and I'm rather taken with Fred paying such particular detail to fashion, especially for Janie. I think that's adorable. Anyway, we'll leave it here for now. Thank you for listening to my love letter time machine. We'll continue with Fred's holiday next time when Jane makes a sudden decision and we'll discover how Emma, Jane's sister, woke one morning to find that her private life had been splashed across the newspapers. In the meantime, you can follow me sharing excerpts of Fred and Jane's letters on Instagram at my love letter time machine, or one word, or on my blog, mydarlingjanie.co.uk. Take care, and have a great week.